Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from Unnoticed London by Elizabeth Montezambert. London has so many landmark sites and buildings. As is the case everywhere, many of these landmarks tend to go unnoticed. This book looks at what some of those unnoticed landmarks were in the early 1900s. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. I'm truly honoured that you have chosen this podcast to help you fall asleep. If you're a regular listener of the show and would like to say thank you, a great way to support the show is to become a Patreon or sponsor at boytosleep.com. I'm grateful for everyone who sponsors the show with a monthly financial contribution. Regardless of how small it is, every contribution helps me bring out more episodes to allow people everywhere to get a good night's rest. For all the other listeners out there who find the podcast beneficial, please leave a review and comment in your podcast app. Even one sentence helps out. If you would like, you can also say hello at boytosleep.com. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at boytosleep. You can also find me on Facebook by searching Boy to Sleep Podcast. In the meantime, lie back, relax and enjoy the ratings. Unnoticed London Chapter 1. If a hurried traveller had only time to roam about one of the London boroughs, I think he should choose Chelsea, because in that small area of houses built along a mile and a half of the Thames Riverside, there is much that is typical of quite different phases of London life. From the 16th century, to the present day. It lies between the King's Road and the Embankment, beginning at Lower Sloane Street, Chelsea Bridge Road, and is reached by the District Railway to Sloane Square Station, or by the number 11 bus passing the Strand, Trafalgar Square, and Victoria by numbers 19 or 22 from Hyde Park Corner and from Kensington by the 31, with its terminus at Limeston Street and by the numbers 49 and 49A. Perhaps the reason why this quarter has always been beloved is because while other districts have had their moment of fame, and now live on their past in solemn content. 
Chelsea has fallen in and out of fashion with a fine carelessness and has always guarded the creative gift of dwellers of all ranks so that the name of the little village has been famous for such a diversity of things as literature, custards, art and waterworks, china and buns, horticulture and learning. There is something cosy and charming about the name Chelsea, a good old Anglo-Saxon word that once meant the gravel isle, Chelsea. It has not become quite so unrecognisable as its neighbour, Battersea, but it has no more just cause for converting into sea the E that means island, with which it once ended. But you cannot lay down stern rules for a name that has taken the bit between its teeth like Chelsea. It started its career in the Doomsday Book of Chalched, and by the time it got to the 16th century, Sir Thomas More is dating a letter to Henry VIII. Out of my poor house is Chalcich. Of the two Thomases whose memory pervades Chelsea, Sir Thomas More is perhaps the most lovable. His son-in-law once said of him, whom in sixteen years and more, being in his house, conversant with him, I could never perceive as much as once in a fume. It is in Roper's life that you read how his neighbours loved him with reason, once, when he had been away on a mission to Cambrai in 1528, he went to report to the king at Woodstock, and then heard that part of his house and barns in Chelsea had been burnt. He had no thought of his own loss, but sent to comfort his wife, and tell her to find out the extent of his neighbour's loss, and indemnify them as far as possible. There have been many other saintly men whom one reveres, but surely none with such wide sympathies. He entertained Erasmus with learned talk, but he also entertained John Hayward, the playwright and court jester. He was wise, but he was also witty, and of which modern philosopher could it be told that when an interlude was performed, he would make one among the players, occasionally coming upon them with surprise, and without rehearsal fall into a character, and support the part by his extemporaneous invention and acquit himself with credit. Dear Sir Thomas More, of delectable memory, it is good to come across signs that you still live in English hearts, even if they take the form of stucco decorations on a lion's tea house in Carey Street. It was Sir Thomas More who first made Chelsea the fashion, though an old manor house that stood near the church had many lordly owners before Henry VIII bought it and following Moore's example, 
built himself the big country mansion of which there are still traces in the basements of the houses on the corner of Shine Walk and Oakley Street. The king is also said to have had hunting lodge nearby and part of it still exists at the end of Glebe Place in a small rather dilapidated building. Sir Thomas More had built his house on the site of the present Beaufort Street, and it stood there till Sir Hans Sloane, the Chelsea Baron Hosman of that day, pulled it down in 1740. The lovely gardens went down to the river. Henry VIII used to come and dine here and walk with his arm round the neck of a friend he afterwards brought to the block, and here more received his other famous friends, among the Erasmus and Holbein, who stayed with him for three years, painting many portraits. It is pleasant to think that the spirit of More's hospitality lived again during the war, and curiously enough at this very place, and in one of his own houses. For though his country home was destroyed, his townhouse, Crosby Hall, built as the great town mansion of Sir John Crosby, a merchant prince, in 1466, was brought from Bishopgate piece by piece in 1910, and four years later, the marvellous timbered roof looked down on the groups of Belgian fugitives that were sheltered there. If you ask the porter at Moore's Garden, a big block of flats on the northeast corner of Battersea Bridge, for the key of Crosby Hall, he will unlock a door in an ugly hoarding facing the embankment close to Chelsea Old Church. You step through it into a remote space where a medieval building stands in the midst of the little rock gardens planted by the Belgian refugees to while away their anxious, tedious hours. Many men have passed through the old hall since Sir John Crosby built it for at different times it had belonged to the Duke of Gloucester, Sir Thomas More, his son-in-law William Roper, and various ambassadors and nobles. In 1609, it was the home of that Countess of Pembroke, whose charms evoked from William Brown the epitaph so often attributed to Ben Jonson. One wonders what they would all have thought of these latest comers to the old mansion, which carried on the English tradition of hospitality so well that the poet among the visitors wrote, and you may see his words on a brass tablet opposite the fireplace. The reconstitution of Crosby Hall was never finished, First, because of the death of King Edward, who took a great interest in the scheme, and then owing to the war. But there it stands, its perpendicular lines, mullioned windows and oriel, 
and the wonderful oaken roof making it one of the best examples that remain to us of 15th century domestic architecture. Chelsea is full of memories of every period since Sir Thomas More's day. Queen Elizabeth, as a child, stayed at her father's manor house here, and later, as a girl of 13, she is said to have lived for a time at Sir Thomas More's house, when it had passed into the hands of her stepmother, Catherine Parr. The charming Georgian houses of the Shine Walk of today carry on the tradition of the beautiful Chelsea homes of those times, such as Shrewsbury House, which stood on the west side of Oakley Street, before it was pulled down in 1813. It was owned by the husband of the famous Bess of Hardwick, the Earl of Shrewsbury, who guarded Mary Queen of Scots in her captivity. The delightful little houses in Paradise Row, with their dormer windows and tiled roofs, were pulled down only a few years ago. Pepys said that one of them was the prettiest contrived house that I have ever seen in my life. Almond Court now reigns in their stead, so there is no trace today of the little house in Paradise Row that the fair but frail Duchess de Marzen, niece of Anne of Austria's Cardinal Prime Minister, rented from Lord Shine when she had fallen on such evil days that her aristocratic guests used to leave money under their plates to pay for their dinner. She was not the only favourite of Charles II to have a summer home in Chelsea. Nell Gwynne lived at the Stanford Manor House and the route by which the Merry Monarch rode to visit her is still called the King's Road. I hesitate to tell that Nell Gwynne's very house is still in existence for fear of taxing too much the ready courtesy of the occupants. Two members of the staff of the Imperial Gasworks, owners of the property, who divide the house between them. My kindly guide had disquieting doubts as to whether Nell ever really lived there, but he admitted that a thimble, unquestionably hers and a Masonic jewel belonging to the king, were found in the house when it was being repaired. Thimbles are not usually associated with the memory of pretty Willy Nally, but the Chelsea heir may have moved her to industry. At all events, there is the Jake Bean house, shorn now of its top story to less the weight of the bulging walls, and with its brick carving but faintly seen under successive coats of rough plaster. But not even the Queen Anne door can destroy the picture. Any lively imagination may summon the nonchalant now, tripping up and down the same staircase, to be seen today. Its design of six steps and a door repeated to the top of the house.
belying the legend that Charles once rode his pony up the stairs. The walnut trees now planted have disappeared, but what is left of the old house stands in a pleasant green hollow, an oasis in the acrid surroundings of a gas factory, the paling of which separates it from the outside world, not a stone's throw from the unsuspecting passengers on a number 11 bus. Joseph Addison lived for a time in the old manor house, and two of his letters written to the Lord Warwick, whose mother he afterwards married, described the bird concerts in the neighbouring woods. If anyone wants to know exactly what the place looked like in Nalguin's day, a very interesting account of it may be found in a book written by a French London lover called Fulham Old and New. It is now out of print, but may be consulted at the Fulham Public Library, reached by any of the buses travelling westward along the Fulham Road. All this is ancient history, of which there is little trace today. The shades of Sir Robert Walpole, Dean Swift, Fielding and Smollett, and good Dr. Burney, Fanny's father, who was organist of Chelsea Hospital and buried in its now-closed cemetery, may still haunt Chelsea, but the actual homes of the people of living memory make a more vivid appeal. Chelsea still keeps up the reputation of being the haunt of famous people, Unlike the inhabitants of the Paris Latin Quarter, artists and poets who have once breathed her air do not remove to more fashionable Mayfair streets when they have arrived. And what a brilliant band of them were found in the Chelsea of the 19th century. Meredith wrote the ordeal of Richard Feverell at number 7, Highbury Street. Charles and Henry Kingsley spent their youth in the old rectory in Church Street, when their father was rector of Chelsea Old Church. George Eliot moved her household gods to number four, Shine Walk, the beautiful house where Daniel Maclise, the early Victorian painter, had lived only three short weeks before her death and Cecil Lawson, the painter of the Harvest Moon in the Tate Gallery, lived at number 15. A volume might be written about Shine Walk alone, those pleasant red brick houses with their wrought iron railings were the homes of some of the greatest geniuses of the Victorian age. Turner lived at 118 for the four years before his death in 1851. Rossetti lived at number 16 with Swinburne and W.M. Rossetti Meredith, had some idea of joining this menage, but recoiled at the sight of Rossetti's oft-quoted poached eggs, bleeding to death, on cold bacon very late in the morning. 
he paid a quarter's rent and decided to live by himself. The Reverend Mr. Hoyes was a later tenant of this famous house, which, in spite of popular tradition, has no connection with Catherine of Braganza, Mrs. Gaskell, the authoress of Cranford, was born at number 93. Whistler spent 12 years at number 96, and here he painted the portraits of his mother and Carlyle. The painter had many Chelsea houses from 101 Shine Walk, where he lived for four years from 1873 to the White House in Tite Street, which he built, and after his quarrel with the architect, adorned with a truly Whistlerian inscription, now removed, except the Lord build the house, they labour in vain that build it. This house was built by Mr. X. William de Morgan and Lee Hunt lived in Chelsea, but the man whose memory is the most vivid of all his brilliant group was Thomas Carlyle. His house at 24 Shine Row is a memorial museum open to any visitor on the payment of one shilling, sixpence on Saturday. The house is kept exactly as it was in the days which Mr. Blunt has so charmingly described in his book, The Carlisle's Chelsea Home. I can tell no more about it except from hearsay, for the terrible loneliness of Hugo's house in the Place de Voyage and of Balzac's in the Rue Renard in Paris dissuaded me from visiting any more houses turned into museums of their owner's belongings. I would rather go to the Chelsea Hospital that is very much alive with the presence of remarkably long-lived old men one of them lived there till he was 123, and another to 116. They think nothing there of mere centenarians. They even tell you of one pensioner who had served for 85 years, and married at the age of 100. They think that was a mistake on the whole, but they are secretly proud of it and also of the Lady Warriors, one of them had the domestic-sounding name of Hannah Snell, who lie buried in the old churchyard among their comrades. Visitors can see the hospital every weekday from 10 till dusk, except for an hour from 12.45 to 1.45, and they may attend the chapel services on Sunday, at 11 a.m. and 6.30, when the pensioners in their brave scarlet coats remind one of her coma's picture. My advice to you, if you want to see Chelsea Hospital really well, is to enlist one of the pensioners as a guide. He will show you the old leather blackjacks and Grinling Gibbons statue of Charles II, in a toga, and the colonnades of the old Wren building. 
so fine in its severe simplicity, and the flags in the chapel so filmy now with age that they look as if a breath of wind would blow them to pieces, and the old portraits and many other arresting things. But what he will like best to exhibit will be the fragments of the bomb that hit one of the buildings during an air raid. He won't allow you to hold on to the belief that Nal Gwyn had anything to do with the Foundation, but he will tell you a lot of interesting details about the regulations of the hospital. How very little like an institution it is, and you will leave the building with an added respect for Charles II. After strolling about Chelsea, one's mind turns with insistence to the thoughts of buns, rare Chelsea buns, as Swift wrote to Stella. There is now nothing left but the name of Bunhouse Place at the corner of Union Street and the Pimlico Road, of the famous shop where 100,000 buns used to be sold of a Good Friday Eve, 140 years ago, and where the Georges and their queens used to drive to fetch their buns. It was taken down in 1839, but the fasting sightseer, being in Chelsea, and not in Bloomsbury or Bayswater, can easily find other places to stay his hunger. If he does not belong to the decorative sex, then the phrase is Mr. Wagner's, not mine. He will doubtless follow the very knowledgeable guide and betake him to the Six Bowels, 195 King's Road, a short distance from the Chelsea Town Hall, and there find the comfort that attracts his artistic clientele. There are other restaurants that are much frequented by the artists of the quarter, the Blue Cockatoo in Shine Walk, near Oakley Street, and the Good Intent, 316 Kings Road, and a new and yet more attractive one on the corner of Arthur Street, with the enticing name of the good-humoured ladies. Chelsea is full of interesting shops. The Chelsea Book Club is on the embankment by Church Street. Its delights must be sampled to be realised, and next door there is a queer handmade toy shop called Pomona, why Pomona? Across the road is Chelsea Old Church, with its high 17th century tower. To me, its interior is the most satisfying in London. The spirit of ancient days dwells there, untouched by modern currents of unrest, and in the tranquil beauty there is no jarring note. Sir Thomas More was one of its celebrated parishioners. You may see his monument and the epitaph he wrote himself. What a pleasant, kindly, independent spirit had this great Chancellor, 
who donned the humble surplice of a parish clerk and sang in the choir, unperturbed by the remonstrances of even so great a personage as the Duke of Norfolk. I always liked the tale of how the latter came to dine with Sir Thomas in Chelsea, and fortuned to find him at the church in choir, with a surplice on his back singing, and as they went home together arm in arm, the Duke said, God's body, God's body, my Lord Chancellor, a parish clerk, a parish clerk, you dishonour the king and his office. And Sir Thomas replied mildly that he did not think the Duke's master and his would be offended with him for serving God, his master, or thereby count his office dishonoured. I love Chelsea Old Church better than any other London church. It has nothing of the heavy solidity that smacks of broadcloth and thick gold watch chains. The congregation on a summer Sunday evening might be met with in any village in England. The very altar has no pomp of embroidered frontal and massive ornaments. It looks almost like a Jacobean dining room with its simple oaken table and dignified chairs on either side. The church is filled with enchanting old treasures, chained Bibles and old monuments to the great dead who worshipped there, but I cannot find it in my heart to catalogue them for you as if it were a museum. Enter those dim walls and see for yourself, and you'll find love as it did with a lover of England. In other churches, with their solemn balconies and air of chilly emptiness, it is difficult to imagine the things that have happened there in other days. But in Chelsea Old Church, which somehow always seemed peopled with friendly ghosts, and never lonely, one can almost see Henry VIII being married secretly to Jane Seymour before the public ceremony and hear the cadence of Dr. John Donne's voice as he preached the funeral oration of the woman who he had immortalised as the autumnal beauty. I think of all the great people who lie buried here the most fascinating is the Lady Danvers, George Herbert's mother, whose great and harmless wit, cheerful gravity, and obliging behaviour attracted so many friends, and among them Dr. Don. She must have been an adorable mother. I sometimes wonder if the care of her ten children ever made her late for church, and if it were some fond memory of his boyhood days that made her saintly son write with the cheerful gravity he may have inherited. Mrs. Herbert came to live in Chelsea when she married Sir John Danvers, after she had brought up her children carefully, 
and put them in good courses for making their fortunes. Danvers House, where she had her husband lived, gave its name to Danvers Street, at the corner of which Crosby Hall now stands. One of the things I like best in Chelsea is the old herb garden, the Chelsea Psychic Garden, that makes a home of peace with its base on the embankment, and the western angle at the beginning of Shine Walk, and the end of the Royal Hospital Road, once called the Queen's Road in honour of Catherine of Braganza, Charles II's Queen. My friendship with the garden is based on no intimate acquaintance, for not to every one is it given past the iron gates that guard its fragrant stillness. If you would do more than gaze through the iron bars of this enchanted space that dreams away the year round undisturbed, you must write to the clerk of the trustees of the London Parochial Charities, Three Temple Gardens, EC4, and ask for a ticket of admission to the most ancient botanical garden in England. Once you have taken the trouble to secure this card, you may stroll along the paths of the Chelsea Psychic Garden that are much as they were when Evelyn went there on 7th of August 1685 to visit Mr. Watts, keeper of the Garden of Simplers at Chelsea, and admire the innumerable rarities there, the tree-bearing Jesuit's bark, which had done such wonders in quarter agues.